0: Hello. Welcome to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Diana Toman,
1: And I'm Phil Dave. Coming up, I'll be speaking to author and historian Paul Hooley, who will be telling us about his fascinating book called Nuremberg's Voice of Doom, which looks at the story of a man who was so instrumental to the Nuremberg trials, you really don't want to miss what he's got to say.
2: And I'm Kate Fulton, and I'll be talking to Arielle Miller, who is going to be the new chief executive of the Union of Jewish Students. Looking forward to that one. But before all that, here's the roundup
3: of this week's Jewish news by Vivian Krieger. And we begin with the Labour activist who said Jewish MPs used Judaism to smear Jeremy Corbyn, avoiding jail. Nick Nelson, who's 29 and believed to be Jewish himself, sent abusive messages to Labour MPs Luciana Berger and Ruth Smith. He pleaded guilty to two offences of harassment without violence at Westminster Magistrates Court and has to do 20 weeks community service. He was also handed a five-year restraining order. A 10-week prison sentence has been suspended for a year. In the United States, a 21-year-old man from Ohio was arrested for planning an attack on a synagogue in the city of Toledo. Damon Joseph was charged with attempting to provide material support to Islamic State. He'd apparently told an undercover FBI agent that he was inspired by the gunman who killed 11 people in the Pittsburgh shul attack. Joseph had been under surveillance for nearly a year before his arrest. Israeli defense forces have uncovered a new tunnel that starts in Lebanon and stretches into Israel. There are now two known tunnels, with a third apparently not yet exposed. All have been constructed by Hezbollah. IDF soldiers are apparently working around the clock preparing to destroy them. A Jewish playwright whose new play tackles anti-Semitism while raising money for a Palestinian charity said he faced abuse by both Israeli and Palestinian supporters, the latter telling him to write a play about Palestinian kids being blown to pieces by Jews. Stephen Lawton's show, One Jewish Boy, has opened at the Red Lion Theatre in Islington, but posters advertising it have been defaced across London. And finally, a Pink Floyd tribute band has cancelled three performances in Israel after pressure from the original group's frontman, Roger Waters. In a Facebook post, Waters said, to sing my songs in front of segregated audiences would be an act of unconscionable malice and disrespect. He also said Israel had a racist and apartheid government. Waters frequently calls on artists scheduled to perform in Israel to cancel their shows. The Pink Floyd tribute band then removed their Facebook page, after supporters of Israel flooded it with angry posts.
0: Thank you, Viv. First, on The Jewish Views this week, we have Richard Ferro with us, the editor, who joins us to review your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Let's start with what can only be described as a spat between Simon Sharma and Naftali Bennett.
4: Simon Sharma, esteemed historian, he is None too pleased with, uh, and yes, Naftali Bennett, leader of the Jewish Home Party, w- many people considered to be prime minister in waiting after Bibi finally gives up the post in 2070, whatever it is going to be, um, <laughs> when he finally bids farewell to the Knesset. Anyway, I digress. Naftali Bennett has said this week that diaspora Jews, get this, don't care about Judaism and they don't care about Israel extraordinary comment. I mean, obnoxious and frankly ignorant comment by someone who clearly doesn't have a, a clue quite what motivates, moves and inspires Jewish people outside of Israel. Now, clearly, his party is called Jewish Home. So it's clear where he's coming from. He wants Aliyah. He wants all the Jews to gather in the Jewish biblical homeland. And that's fair enough. But Simon Sharma has been absolutely scathing. I can't imagine Simon Sharma really angry. It's, but uh, It's difficult. Coming across in his tweets this week he called it detestable and ignorant and absolutely scathing about this comment i've probably said on this show many times british jewish life is is very distinct very unique to 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 british jews here in this country and i understand that jews in israel and around the world probably don't recognize that we have a very unique brand of judaism here in the uk But it's loud and it's proud and it is a part and parcel of British life. Comments like this, I think, are an absolute betrayal of that. So, yes, I quite agree with uh, the esteemed Mr Sharma. Uh, It it was a detestable comment, not very impressed at all.
0: But, Richard, isn't that a self-defeating comment by Mr Bennett? Because it's not much of an incentive if he wants people to go to Israel. If he starts off on that on that path.
4: Clearly, assimilation is at the, at the heart of this. He, he wants Jews to, to flock and he wants the population to rise. And often, you know, not to their credit, Israeli politicians at times of great crisis, when there's conflict going on in the Middle East or anti-Semitism rising here in Europe, as it, as it has been in recent years, they will use that as a stick almost to, to beat Jewish communities of France and Belgium and, and Germany and here in the UK and say, Well, listen, why get the, get out of there. You know, there's a, a homeland for you could called, called Israel and that's where you should be and that's where your future lies. Well I, I frankly disagree. I mean I could never live in Israel. I go three, four, five times a year because I'm obviously passionate about it and enjoy it when I'm there, but no no no, I'm 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 British to my roots and i couldn't possibly live in that country proud of it nonetheless so yeah not happy with what he said and i think he should probably come over here naftali bennett and see places like jw3 or go to limud or see our amazing synagogues and our wonderful way of of life and jewish brand in this country and he might have more of an appreciation for what we stand for
0: Indeed. I wonder if that'll ever happen.
4: Also, Naftali Bennett was actually meant to be here in the UK a couple of weeks ago, but he cancelled because there was going to be a vote against Bibi, but that didn't happen. So, yeah, he he is actually planning on being here in a couple of weeks' time or a couple of months' time. So when he does, I'll I'll ask him those questions directly. (laughs) We'll get him in for a chat. Yes. Anyway, yeah, we should get him in on the show. Absolutely.
0: On a slightly lighter note, let's talk about fancy dress Mm. of a rather sinister kind
4: so fancy dress now who hasn't gone to a fancy dress party dressed as someone that is clearly embarrassed by i mean i've i've gone as a backwards schoolboy i've gone as wonder woman all sorts of things Anyway, we won't labour too know. long on that image. Sorry, you've you've gone as Wonder Woman. Yes, okay. I did. Yeah, just checking. Yeah, endless a long. long Why did
3: that it out.
4: It's a long and, and- <laughs> it was a
3: long
0: time ago,
4: was it? it, it, it actually, worryingly, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, but yes, it's a long and sordid story, and and not one I'm prepared to go into great detail on. Anyway, so that will be a Thank you very much. There so you go. Tell
0: us about. Shall this we get to
4: the point anyway, <laughs> people? Yes. Yeah, so uh, um, escapade, fantastic mm. fancy dress shopping, Camden stocking Gestapo outfits. Anyway, actually, I'm, 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 we've got a picture in the paper this week. There's a picture of a man wearing a Gestapo outfit, and the slogan above says "Gestapo officer." And do you know these things are like forty-eight quid. Oh my god! I mean, yeah, because all made of polyester. Or something. Well, they're <laughs> made. Well, they're probably made. They're probably designer suits. Anyway, so we, we brought it to their attention, and they were very proactive and very good to, to remove it. There, that no longer exists. I mean, these things happen all the time, don't they? Do you remember there was the the, the couple that turned up at a, a, a fancy dress party dressed as the Twin Towers on fire that was in one Ooh. of the tabloids last year appalling absolutely appalling but yes long time ago Osama bin Laden Harold Shipman you've seen these people dressed as these nightmares clearly for shock value and this is too but you you wonder I mean who, who would turn up as a Gestapo and who'd sell a Gestapo outfit
1: you do wonder but at the same time could it be on a slightly flip side of the argument that it does make a mockery of people who deserve to have mockery made of them so even though i fully appreciate that there are many people who would see that and it would bring about horrible haunting memories could it be that actually it treats it with the total lack of respect that it deserves
4: Yeah, this looks to me like a a reenactment costume, something that's actually faithful to the original. They actually haven't used the the sinister red swastika armband. They've just gone with a red armband with a white dot. So clearly they know there's a a line here that they shouldn't be crossing, but I suggest they've crossed it anyway.
0: And you, uh, in, in other words, the Jewish News... Led the protest against it and got it closed down.
4: Yeah, we led the charge, so now no one can turn up as a Gestapo officer at their fancy dress party over the festive period. But yes, you can turn up as Wonder Woman if you want. I have a costume (laughs) if anyone wants that.
0: And something else that the Jewish News has been leading, we talked to Justin about this a couple of weeks ago. This is to do with black taxi cabs in Poland.
4: Absolutely, yes. Black cabs do go south of the river as our headline about the uh, this fantastic initiative from In The Depths, this wonderful charity run by Johnny Daniels. They have put together two perfectly usable black cabs and this week they set off with their logos and the Jewish News logo on it because we're supporting the campaign too to Poland where they're going to be community buses for the righteous in Poland the righteous among the nations who helped save Jewish lives during the Second World War so it's a thank you from the depths and from Johnny Daniels to honor those who kind of stood up to, to the horrors of, of the Second World War and and saved Save people by risking their own Who's lives. Johnny Daniels. So yeah, he does a lot of amazing work in um, Eastern Europe with Jewish communities in Poland, especially uh, a lot of charity work out there. It's getting higher, higher, higher and higher profile, and this organisation has been run in conjunction with Chelsea Football Club. Avram Grant, the Israeli uh, former manager, was at the launch this week of these two taxes as they head off, and yeah, it's. I don't know why these people can't just get Ubers like the rest of us, but it's very, very nice (laughs) that they are being ferried around as and when they require. But yeah, clearly, uh, this is the least I think that the Jewish community can do for people who have done such so much for us.
1: And also, if you think about the, the green element of it as well, is that it's quite nice to think that taxis that would have otherwise gone to the scrap heap are actually being used and can still be serviceable. Mm. And it's a, it's an icon, isn't
4: it? A designer icon as well. Uh, you know, like our big, our big old double-decker buses, the yeah. big black cab. Nice to see that uh, zooming around woods and... Warsaw and
1: uh, other other necks of the Polish woods in the in the years to come. Well, I sense if the electric taxicabs take over before long, which they probably will do, there'll be quite a few more that'll be needing a new home. So it's nice to think that there is something that they can be used for.
0: And that's where we'll have to leave it for this week. But thank you, Richard. Don't forget you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at Jewish News.
1: You're listening to the Jewish Views in association with the Jewish News. Now, when you think of the Nuremberg trials, I'm sure that you probably think of many of the infamous individuals who were facing charges during that. But each of them have their own story. But arguably, only one man had access to all of the stories in greater detail than you and I probably would ever care to know. The person who I'm talking about is one Wolf Frank, but a new book about his story has been edited by our next guest, Paul Hooley, who joins me on the line now. Paul, thank you so much for speaking to us on The Jewish Views. I have to say, first of all, that I've had a glance over your remarkable book. And my goodness me, it is a fascinating story and probably one that people would be forgiven for not really thinking of in that perspective. Can you tell us a bit about the life of Wolf Frank and his history and how he came to be?
5: Wolf Frank was a a German-born resident of of Saxony, and he grew up in a rather privileged background. His father was a, a Jewish industrialist, and by the time that he was about 20, early 1930s this is, he'd become in his own words, a Bavarian playboy. But the, the Voice of Doom is a story of two interwoven themes. It's one of love, adventure and excitement, the other of a former resistant worker's last gasp escape from Nazi capture and his fight to become a British soldier and his remarkable rise to the rank of captain, which led to his service duty and justice that was seen to be scrupulously fair to all the judges, the prosecutors, the defence lawyers, and the war criminals alike, throughout what was described as being the greatest and most significant trial the world has ever seen.
1: It certainly was. And also just to, I suppose, remind people who maybe don't know that much about the history of the Nuremberg trials. I know this sounds like an impossible task in a 10 minute interview, but can you try and summarize exactly the purpose behind the Nuremberg trials and why they were so famous for infamy?
5: Yes, the, the Nuremberg trials were a series of trials after the Second World War where they prosecuted prominent members of the political, military, judicial, and the economic leadership of Nazi Germany, the ones that had planned, carried out, and perhaps otherwise participated in the the Holocaust or in other war crimes. They were held at the Palace of Justice in Nuremberg, and the first and most high profile of these was the one which tried Goering, who was Hitler's designated deputy, and uh, 23 others of the hierarchy. There then was a, another series of, well, I think it was 12 trials, which they called the Subsequent Proceedings. And these, in turn, tried other war criminals and leaders of, the, of Nazi Germany who not necessarily had committed lesser crimes, but weren't as high-profile perhaps as the first twenty-four.
1: Well, I was going to say when you when you mentioned high-profile, you mentioned just now Hermann Goering, but again, some of the other names that have cropped up here is Rudolf Hess was another yes. one, and you got. Walter Funk. You know, there are so many high-profile individuals here that people who follow the history of World War Two and the main perpetrators of the hideous crimes that we witnessed during it. These are the people that we're talking about being brought to justice. Here. It's absolutely extraordinary. And one man in particular, who we refer to in this book, was, I suppose, possibly the only person to get the most intricate detail of all of the trials. It was absolutely unbelievable what his perspective on Nuremberg trials must have only been.
5: Well, it was. He was actually appointed to the British War Crimes Executive on the very first day that it was formed. So he was involved throughout all the procedures, the gathering of the information, in fact, he translated the first and then only piece of information there was, right through the trials, and it was he, and this is where he gets his epithet of the voice of doom, he announced the sentences that brought proceedings to a close.
1: I was going to ask where voice of doom came from. Now, speaking as him as a translator... This is a remarkable feat in itself because he didn't actually speak English for many years, did he?
5: No. When he he escaped from Germany, just prior to the war, he was working for a resistance group and he escaped via Switzerland and France to England under the threat of being shot on sight, traitor to the cause. When he arrived in England, he couldn't speak English. But within a few months, he had not only learnt the language, but he had become an executive, well, within two years, an executive of two or three companies. And by the time of the Nuremberg trials, it was said that he was the finest interpreter in the world.
1: Which screams volumes, really, for the possibility of two reasons for that. Number 1, English is a very easy language to learn, or secondly and far more likely, we're talking about Wolf Frank being an incredibly astute and clever individual.
5: I think the latter. He he was a very gifted man and he was a very dedicated and honorable man as well. Two sides to his character. One that I I described to you earlier where he was a playboy and he lived life to the full but his dedication and his commitment to the cause was second to none. And throughout the trials, as I perhaps have already indicated, at every level, tribunal itself, the prosecutors, the defence lawyers, and even the defendants thought so highly of him, and they all trusted him implicitly.
1: Now, the book being written, that you have put together, or you've edited, I should say, is thanks to one Mike Dillaway. Can you try and explain who Mike is and how he fits in to this book ultimately being published? Because this is an amazing story.
5: Yes, it is. In his later days, in his uh, last four or five years, Wolf had become rather a, a sad character. He'd fallen on difficult times, both financially and emotionally. As I said earlier, he, he'd been married five times and He had many, many affairs and really had lived life to the full. But in his final years, he'd made some misjudgments in in some of his business dealings, and he he had very little left. And he retired to a village in Wiltshire called Myr, where he spent his final days and completed his memoirs. And Mike Dillaway befriended him there. Mike ran a panel beating and car repair business and Wolf needed a lot of work done on his car and they struck up a friendship that lasted the last four or five years of his life.
1: Which makes uh, it even uh, more extraordinary, really, because they were obviously very new friends.
5: In a sense, they were. Accepting that, I would say that whilst Wolf had such a full life, He didn't seem to spend more than four or five years in any one place throughout his adult life. He was moving around all the time. But when he most needed a friend, should I say, then Mike Dillaway was there for him. And he died in such poverty, that not poverty, but with such a lack of funds that there wasn't enough money left in his estate to carry his... To cover his, his his burial, and again Mike stepped in and paid for that and settled some other debts. And um, Wolf, in turn, had at left. I might not have mentioned, and we might not have touched on it yet, that he he did um, take his own life.
1: No, we we haven't touched um, on that, and I was going to come to that next. But this book is without doubt. I've only read a couple of pages. I'm ashamed to say, but that's because I've only very recently received my copy. But believe me, I will be reading it, and. You must have just lived and breathed this for the last several years. What would you say in a summary, in a sentence, would you say is your particular standout moment from all of the works within that that you've edited?
5: Well, I think that as I put it together, as I I went through the papers, I realised what important historical information this was, but also what a wonderful human life story And I felt so much that it was important that other people became aware of it, military historians and the general public alike, because it is such a wonderful story, and he was such an important man in the greatest trials ever. And in fact, it is said that he and his colleagues actually shortened proceedings by over three years.
1: I can only say that I could carry on talking to you about this all afternoon and I don't think I'd get bored. But unfortunately, we are out of time. But thank you so much for not only speaking to us on The Jewish Views, but frankly, for bringing this into the public eye, because what a remarkable individual Wolf Frank was, and frankly is, even though he's no longer around. And frankly, what a remarkable individual you are for editing this book. Paul Hooley talking to me about Nuremberg's Voice of Doom, which is the autobiography of the chief interpreter at History's Greatest Trials. Thank you so much for speaking to us on The Jewish Views.
5: It's been a pleasure, Phil. Thank you very much. If you'd like to get
0: in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish Views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash thejewishviews. On Twitter, we're at jewishviewsuk. Or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk.
2: You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News, I'm talking to Arie Miller, who is the new appointed Chief Executive of the Union of Jewish Students. Welcome Arie. Tell us a bit about yourself first.
6: I am born and bred in the Jewish community, the UK Jewish community, and really have enjoyed working now for the Jewish community, and this is another exciting challenge on that step. I actually this is not my first venture towards UJS. When I was a student, I was very involved on campus, both with my JSOC and with UJS. And then when I first left university, working in the Jewish community, I was working very closely with UJS, dealing with anti-Semitism and security for Jewish students on campus. So it's an organization that really is Speaks close to you. my heart. Yeah.
2: You're going to be working with, to some extent, I imagine, Esther Offenberg, who's the president of the Union of Jewish Students. How will what you do vary or interact with what she's doing?
6: From my understanding, obviously it's a recent appointment, so I'm not uh, I'm not sitting in the chair, so to speak, yet. But from my understanding, the chief executive and the president work very closely together. I think it's really important for me, both personally and for UJS organisationally, that UJS is an organisation of the students and for the students. I think the fact that it is a new lever who is elected by the student body to lead their student union, I think is a really amazing thing about the organization. And it really is something that really excites me about working for UJS. And the CEO role at UJS is that long-term planning. It's looking looking ahead whilst the president is working on all of the activity and the amazing enrichment and leading and defending Jewish life on campus for that year. The CEO role is looking one, two, three, four, five years ahead to ensure that there is succession, that UJS is able to continue to be that vibrant and exciting organisation that it currently is.
2: Well, you say you're going to be interacting. This is for students and about students. What sort of issues are facing the students now in 2018 and will be in the, in the um, couple of years in the short term that you talk about?
6: So just like students are varied, as are the issues, the issues of anti-Semitism, the issues. And I know my predecessor has been working a lot on combating the issues of labour anti-Semitism ever since that first issue at the Oxford Labour Club. He really has been doing a huge amount of work to ensure that Jewish students feel safe on campus. Um, uh, The issues, though, also do change. The issues that I saw as a student may not be the issues that students now face. And it's about ensuring that Jewish students on campus are able to have a full and fulfilled student life and Jewish student life. For many students, that's one and the same thing. But for some students, being able to be Jewish easily on campus enables them to have an amazing student experience and student life.
2: I mean, there is, you know, sometimes you feel that there is a lot of overlap. You've got the chaplaincy, you've got the UJS, you've got JSOC. What defines your role and what do you see the biggest challenges for 2019 are going to be?
6: There are some amazing campus providers who work on all areas, whether it is that pastoral care that chaplaincy gives or whether it's Israel enrichment that so many organisations give or whether it's the Jewish educational value that others bring. UJS is slightly different to each of those. UJS is not only... A campus provider but a campus uh, supporter and a campus enabler. UJS maintains those relationships, those long-term relationships both with the student bodies but also with the uh, academic bodies uh, that govern campus to ensure that students can be represented where they're needed. There have been issues recently of talks being cancelled as an example and it's UJS that has the relationship with those institutions to enable good representation and fair representation of the students that are directly affected by that.
2: Well, if you had a magic wand or you could choose your own projects or something you'd really like to happen, what would you what would you like to make happen for students on campus or in the widest student body?
6: So I, I'm joining UJS at a very exciting time for the organisation. It is the UJS 100. Uh, it's 100 years since the founding of UJS. And I'm also leaving the ZF at an exciting year for the ZF. It's 120 years since the founding of the Zionist Federation. With all anniversaries, it's very easy to look back and reminisce, but actually what is important is to look forward to the next hundred years and to ensure that UJS's illustrious history over a hundred years enables it to have a growing and an exciting uh, future.
2: Arie newly appointed Chief Executive of the Union of Jewish Students. Good luck and thank you.
6: Thank you.
0: Time now for our Rabbinic Thought of the Week by Rabbi Harvey Belovsky from Golders Green United Synagogue.
7: The parasha this week is absolutely fascinating. The story ended with a cliffhanger last week where Joseph encounters his brothers once again. They've been dragged back to Egypt his youngest brother, Benjamin, now accused of stealing his cup. And just as we um, imagine the story is going to come to its end, the music comes on and we have to wait to this week where the reconciliation begins. In fact, it starts with the word Vayigash, which means he approached because this, unlike the rest of the story, is about reconciliation. Finally, when he can no longer control himself, Joseph reveals his true identity to his brothers. He's not the Egyptian viceroy, born in, and bred in Egypt, as they suspected, but in fact Joseph, their long-lost brother, whom they'd sold to slavery and assumed they would never see again. When the moment comes, the verse says that Joseph spoke to his brothers and said, "Haoyd avichai, is my father still alive?" It's a very strange question. They've repeatedly told him that their father is alive, and that they couldn't bear the prospect of Benjamin being separated. Joseph knows he's alive, so why does he ask this question? I think the answer is important. The real question he's asking is, could he really be alive? What kind of life could he be living with all this trouble, all this sorrows, as we call it? Not knowing where his children are, not, not, not knowing what's going on. Can my father really have survived the experience of imagining that I'm dead and gone for more than 20 years? They reassure him that he has survived. Perhaps somewhere in the back of his mind, Jacob imagined that Joseph hadn't died. We'll never know. But we do know that it's important to imagine not just whether someone is physically, as it were, technically alive, but whether they are really living in a way that is meaningful and purposeful.
1: Thank you to Rabbi Harvey Bolowski from Golders Green United Synagogue with our thoughts for the week. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you very much to all of our guests, Paul Hooley, author and historian, and to Arie Miller from the Union of Jewish Students technically speaking. And of course, thanks goes to our producer Sue Greenberg and to you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website jewishviews.co.uk and please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News from me, Phil Dave.
2: From me, Kate Fulton. And me, Diana Toman.
1: Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.